water are we going to talk about this week? This week, Valley Line users were left out in the cold when doors didn't function and the heat wouldn't turn on. Plus, Epcor really leads the OP12 savings charge by cutting off everyone's water. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 249, and welcome to, to our, I uh, guess, maybe series regulars at this point. <laughs> Stephanie and Tim are joining us from the Taproot offices. Welcome to both of you. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Of course, uh, Stephanie is a reporter at Taproot, and uh, Tim is the new managing editor at Taproot. You will have met him during our Valley Line train segment, and he's here to talk once again about those trains. Tim, you did some reporting this week about the Valley Line shelters giving riders the quote cold shoulder. Uh, I did not do the reporting. Our newsroom did the reporting. But yes, we are looking at that much loved and much frustrating sometimes uh, Valley Line LRT and especially the doors. Correct me if I'm wrong, but doors should just open and close. The technology for doors has existed for a while. What are they getting wrong with these doors? Yeah, so the doors should open and should close. The doors do not open and do not close in some cases. As our reporter uh, found out, the issue has been known about since November. That's basically when the line opens, if I'm not mistaken. Given that I've experienced this myself with my family, um, you might recognize the photo of the person in the story on our site is uh, none other than my son pushing said button, trying to open the door and being very frustrated when it didn't open. So you're unable to get inside and experience the, the heat, which I have experienced actually working. So there was, there was a change. There were some fixes on that, that the heated shelters are heated. Just trying to get inside is the continuing challenge. So these are shelters on the platforms. Instead of you walk up to the door and it's some sort of automated detect you, you have to press a metal button to try to get in. You have to press a metal button. It has a picture of a wheelchair on it. So you press the metal button and many times it doesn't work. And as I was uh, explaining before we went on uh, to start recording here, uh, this morning when I got on the train, I ride the train whenever I come downtown, uh, many of the doors at many of the stations are now pulled off their tracks, like almost as if someone had yanked them open in desperation to get into that heated shelter. TransEd, I assume, has given some reasons for why these doors aren't working. Uh, Edmonton, of course, is no stranger to doors not working in the cold. You and I are both acutely aware of how well our funicular works in the downtown cold. What was TransEd saying the problem is here? Why, why are they alleging these doors aren't working? Seems like they allege that it's mostly about vandalism and people doing what I just said, like doing the doing the the door is a disservice by de-dooring them or something like that. I don't know if that works, but they uh, are suggesting that it's basically users who are treating the doors badly rather than a technology problem. And our reporter was really unable to get a whole lot of detail from the city. And I think that it's important to mention that like our reporter went to the city and asked, you know, should I be speaking to Transit about this? And the city, from my recollection of the conversation I had with the reporters, just basically said, no, talk to us. If you go onto the city's website, it says something completely different, which is quite interesting. Well, and I remember in our conversation with Carrie Haunt and McDonald at the Valley Line opening, uh, she was quite clear that while ETS might triage some requests, Transed ultimately runs this line, operates the stations, and it's a Transed responsibility. You said this has been ongoing since, you know, at least November. Uh, we're into February now. That's 
the better part of three months. How's this flying over with the city's accessibility goals, right? Because I imagine these stations, especially in our cold snap, are not quite hospitable without any shelter whatsoever. A reporter talked to the city's uh, accessibility uh, officials. The big thing to note is that this design, the the Valley Line, uh, predates some of our more up-to-date accessibility policies. And so in some ways, it's not clear whether those guidelines apply to this line. But in, in future, accessibility will be a lens applied to all sorts of infrastructure projects and designs. Again, the question is, does it apply to the Valley Line? We're not so clear. We don't really know at this moment. I mean, clearly it should, right? Clearly, whatever our modern accessibility guidelines are should apply to all these public spaces, including the LRT station shelters. I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, these are these metal buttons. And as a stroller user, I very much appreciate the more modern style that we see in lots of buildings where it's a sensor and you can kind of wave something in front of it because it's a lot easier to activate those types of buttons than it is one you have to physically press. Just back to the vandalism quickly and and what TransEd said there, like you obviously saw this morning there's vandalism, but it seems to me that there wouldn't be vandalism if the doors just worked in the first place. Did they say anything about that? No, but I would I would tend to agree with you that if the door works, why break it? Yeah, it would just open. I would press the button and it would open and then problem would be solved. Most people, if they want to use a door and it opens... They forget about the door, (laughs) but that's just, I guess, how I see it. (laughs) One thing that this reminds me of is how little accountability we have for this system. This is a P3. It's not clear who you even talk to about broken doors, much less is there clarity on accountability for the fixes. In any of your reporting, either talking about the city or through TransEd, did you learn anything about, well, what is the timeline for a fix? What is the required timeline for a fix? Who is actually responsible for addressing these complaints? Yeah, it's a great question. So we the, the quote in the story is, should these issues continue, TransEd and the city will collaborate on a long-term solution. So it's all taken care of. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> the lack of detail, the lack of timeline, the lack of whatever is kind of there and it, it goes to what you're saying, that uh, this line has, since its kind of beginnings and, and especially during the, the delays and all of that, it's just been a difficult thing for people who want to uh, inquire about it, ask questions about it, to really know who to talk to, to get straight answers, to get detailed answers. And it really is frustrating given that if you are a, a you know an Edmonton booster like I am, that you see that this is probably one of the better things we've done in a very long time. And so we should be able to like talk about this line, both what's working and what's not. And to speak about it as what isn't working is to kind of say, well, we hope it can work better. Like, it's not just to be critics. We're, we're just saying that we hope it could work better. Indeed, we want it to work well for everyone because it's there and built, but also because it's going to be extended and we're building the line out to the west and it'll be slightly different. But hopefully, as we've mentioned, it feels like a lot on this podcast, Troy. Lessons learned from Valley Line Southeast can be applied to the west so we don't repeat these. As, as our uh, co-founder Karen at Taproot likes to say, let's make new mistakes. <laughs> Let's not make the same mistakes again. Indeed, the West is interesting because it is only a design and build P3. TransEd is going to operate Valley Line West. So is the door problem a build problem or is it an operate problem? Uh, Perhaps we will just continue to have the same mistake 
continuing onto the Valley Line West if it's a problem of someone being unable to operate the door. A little bit of pessimism to taper uh, your, <laughs> your optimism there, Mac. Fair enough. Well, thanks, Tim, for joining us, and thanks for uh, doing some of this reporting. Uh, I know we can rely on you to get the Valley Line beat, not only because you are literally doing the beat in physical person every day on the train. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. He has to head out now, but of course, that was managing editor of Taproot, Tim Querengesser. And as he heads out, so too does he welcome in from the cold, the ad break. Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, and this episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The cost of healthy food for a year for a family of four has increased by nearly $5,000 since 2013. You would know that if you read the latest Vital Signs report from the Edmonton Community Foundation and the Edmonton Social Planning Council. This is a report that tells you all about food security and how it's changed over the last 10 years and where we're at today. Uh, you can learn more and read such a report at ecfoundation.org slash vital signs. Of course, Tim is not the only guest here. We are also joined by Stephanie Swensrud. She's a reporter from Taproot, and she did some reporting this week on OP12, everyone's favorite budget cut motion that doesn't quite cut the budget, at least yet. Yeah, I was gobsmacked at this report, honestly. It's a very insane report that we can't view anymore because it got deleted off of the website because of the canceled meetings and I wish I would have saved it before so that we could talk about it more in depth. But some of the proposed cuts that the city is putting forward are just absolutely crazy. Selling off the Stanley A. Milner Parkade, for example, cutting funds to the Edmonton Heritage Council completely, cutting funds to the Edmonton Sports Council completely, cutting funds to the anti-suicide strategy completely. There's a lot of very intense cuts in this report. So if I understand correctly, this is the $240 million part of OP12. Mm-hmm. So the administration has said, we're kind of on track for the $60 million in cuts, but these reallocations you wanted mm-hmm. were only at about $130 million and we don't know what else to do. So here's a big long list of everything that you might do. That's, that's what we're talking about here, right? Exactly. We're talking about potentially cutting, selling off these assets and things like that. Mm-hmm. And this... These 60 options or so that are in this report were meant to go to committee for, I guess, an initial mm-hmm. view. So this is coming up. There was a mix of things, right? Cuts, mm-hmm. but also additions. One thing that caught my eye is a merch store <laughs> for Edmonton <laughs> Transit. Let's stop and applaud the city for <laughs> this phenomenal idea. Yeah. I would buy ETS merch unquestionably. I do yeah. question the cuts they're proposing. Like, get a better Cotton Bureau deal if you're only making 12% on your merch, uh, city. But, you know, the idea that the city could sell ETS merch and make, they think, maybe a $10,000, maybe $20,000 on the upside, perhaps even $100,000 as places like Toronto might. Even if the city makes $12, I want an ETS merch store. One of my favorite items, Mac, I believe you got one as well. The little sort of like stress ball stuffed plushie of an ETS yeah. bus. Yeah. This is a collector's item. No, I won't sell it to you, dear listener. I know you want it because I also want it. And I wish you could <laughs> buy one. <laughs> Stephanie, did you get any sense in the report of, you know, how serious some of these options are versus others? So, for example, in your in your story, 
you mentioned one of the potential options is eliminating the requirement for contractors to comply with the living wage policy, which does not seem like a thing that I expect this council will approve, yeah. yet it's in the list of options. And then there's other things where, you know, that could be really plausible. And it's almost like, why don't we do that already? So, you know, some of the fees are changing some of the fees or, um, you know, increasing fees for fire inspections, things like that. I know there's a whole other part of that industry that would complain about those sorts of things. But, you know, we already have a fee. Increasing the fee seems like a doable thing. Mm -hmm. You know, some of these other policy things or these broader, you know, asset changes don't seem quite the same. So were they kind of presented all as a bucket or were there groups? There was basically two categories. One had the rationale, the amount of money that was expected to be saved or to be like increased in revenue. And it had like a whole risk analysis. And these ones are clearly the ones that are being taken more seriously. And those ones are the ones that had the dollar amounts with them. Mm -hmm. And then there was a list that the city says is low priority, essentially because they know that city council is probably not going to go for it. But they said, we can look at it if you if you want. We're still presenting these as options. And all of these options came from a list of like 500 recommendations from council, city staff, and uh, city union partners. So that gives you an idea of like who is suggesting these ideas. Clearly, they are acknowledging it's unlikely that council will want to raise transit fares across the board, but they're still including it as an option. And of course, we see this all the time with city and indeed with business. Uh, you'll set a price floor. You'll come in with an absurdly high price for something so that you can negotiate it down to what you really wanted, the more reasonable thing. By including some of these absurd items, they make it easier and more palatable to past the ones that may have had some more debate otherwise. I found it really interesting that one of the items on the list, Mac, was a throwback to good old episode one of Speaking Municipally, mm -hmm. raising the fees for commemorative benches. The longtime Speaking Municipally superfan listener will remember this podcast started when administration tried to uh, decommemorate some commemorative benches to save some money. So it's nice to see our old friend rear its head once again. I think it might pass this time, though. Yeah, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, I suppose, right? Yeah. Uh, that did catch my eye as well, Troy. There's a, you know several things in here that we've talked about, I think, in the past that have come back up again. I imagine swimming pools would have been on this list if we hadn't already dealt with that a dozen times at various budget discussions. One thing that I questioned when I was reading this report is, you know, we've talked a lot about OP12 and there's the 60 million in cuts and there's the 240 million in reallocations. And this is reallocations to priority areas. E.g., we're supposed to be taking spending that council doesn't deem a priority and instead spend on areas that council does deem a priority. Stephanie, as you were listing some of the things that were proposed as cuts, it occurred to me that I feel like administration must have a pretty gross misunderstanding of what council's priorities are, especially the cuts entirely to things like suicide support and prevention. Like, I can't imagine a majority of our council saying, yeah, cut that. We don't we don't care about that. That's not important to us. I think that almost the tone of the writing in the report was a little bit, you want cuts? Here are the cuts you're going to get because it, these are very wide sweeping cuts that are proposed and it'll be very surprising to see what uh, council does does with them. With all of the ones that are being like seriously considered, if they accept all of those cuts, they will be above 
the $240 million. So they don't need to accept all of those cuts to meet OP12. So there's a little bit of wiggle room within the ones that are being seriously considered. I had kind of two other reactions when I saw your story. The first was, well, at least city manager Andre Korbold is being consistent here because he did say back in February last year when they froze hiring and travel spending and things like that, that getting the $240 million would be the hardest part. Cutting the $60 million is an easier thing for them to figure out than reallocating all of this money. So that seems to be true mm-hmm. still, and the report doesn't seem to, uh, to, to say anything that's contrary to that. The other thing I was curious about, though, is it made me just think back, and I don't actually remember, like, why is it $240 million in the first place? Is it just a nice round number? You know, like, it's not really obvious where the $240 million came from. We know that it works out to, you know, about 7% of the city's annual budget, or if you take into account some constraints about things that just can't be cut, it's closer to 15% of the city's annual budget. But, you know, maybe $130 million that they've already identified in allocations is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not actually cutting spending in most cases. It's reallocating from one area to another, right? So we still have to collect the same amount of taxes and all that kind of stuff. I, I wonder if council could look at this and say, actually, those reallocations are going to have an impact and we're good with that. Well, so I saw Councillor Aaron Paquette on social media. I believe it was on Reddit. He was talking about OP12 and... The tenor of his comments were basically, you know, city administration has been doing council's 2% for over a decade now, and administration is pretty trim, right? There's not actually a lot of cuts to be found. And he was saying that he thinks the result of this exercise will be sort of this report. Here's some options if you really want to cut some stuff, but there's not actually that many cuts to be found. Uh, This, of course, won't be welcome news for some of the councillors who at the last budget said, find me my cuts or I'm making them myself. But I think what we're seeing right here, especially with some of the more out there options, is a line in the sand by the city manager saying, I can't do anything more with what you've given me. This is the best you're going to get. I also think that Edmontonians are going to be upset with this because I was recently listening to a council meeting where some they were talking about raising the budget for mowing the lawn and pulling weeds and stuff. And, you know, regular citizens saying, we need to raise the budget for this. But People don't realize that the budget is trim. There is not that much room to move around. And then, of course, if you raise taxes to meet service levels that people want, people are also going to be really upset. So, And this is what this report is really all yes. about, right? Which is taking this off of administration's plate, putting it back onto council's plate, because mm-hmm. ultimately they're the ones that are going to have to make the call yeah. to say either we're cutting service levels or, you know, we are increasing taxes or whatever the decision is in order to, to meet the things that they decide. But that's a council decision. The, the political fallout is on council for that, not on administration. Part of me feels that that's really a more appropriate place to put it. Like, I get the idea that councillors shouldn't be going through the budget line by line and giving line item vetoes and that sort of thing. I get that that puts us in a dangerous situation, but I kind of think that's what we need, right? Uh, This is a political decision. No matter what happens here, there's going to be political fallout for it. And I kind of want council to own their decisions. Uh, I don't want council to end the term saying, oh, our taxes are so high, but administration couldn't find any savings. We elected you, like, spend, I'm not going to say an afternoon, spend 70 afternoons reading the budget binder and find your cuts. I think back to in the last big budget, 
when Counselor Karen Tang suggested cutting almost half of the library's budget in a widely panned motion that uh, was completely ill-advised. But what I like about it is it came completely out of left field. No one in administration was saying, let's cut the library by half. And, you know, her justification for the number was, it felt right. But it really did show the idea of the counselors opening up the budget and saying, where can I find some cuts? Because administration is self-preserving, right? Administration isn't going to say, oh, pretty please let me cut all of my own jobs. Sometimes council will have to step in there. And we know that labor is the biggest cost for the city of Edmonton with a CSU 52 negotiation ongoing and perhaps an upcoming strike. If we're talking about savings, the savings are in cutting people's jobs. And that reality needs to be borne by council and it needs to be a decision made by council. I guess the other good thing about a motion like that or some of the suggestions on this report is it's an opportunity to reaffirm how important we think something is. In that case, no, libraries are critical. We cannot cut the budget for libraries. In this case, you know, it might be, you know, funding to the Edmonton Heritage, Heritage Council or, or some, you know, supporting a living wage policy or, you know, some of the other things on there. It might be a good opportunity for council and administration to just come back together again and say, no, 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 these things are table stakes. We can't change these. An ETS merch store, on the other hand. <laughs> the last thing I want to say is it makes me wonder if this is going to be a wake-up call for council. Going back to the, the turf maintenance discussion, at that meeting, there was a motion put forward to introduce a service package to raise service levels to 2019 levels. And it makes me wonder if council is going to be a little less service package trigger happy, if they're going to be a little less likely to say, oh, yeah, just put in a service package. It's fine. I, and, and it also makes me wonder, this kind of goes into all of the reports being pushed forward. It makes me wonder if they're also going to be less likely to say, yeah, give us a report. What's the harm in getting a report? Because they may see that the budget is trim and maybe they shouldn't be just going, oh, yeah, whatever, just go for it. Just like a family leading a, a trim budget, sometimes unexpected expenses come out, you know, the car breaks down and you got to repair it. Or indeed, City Hall has a shooter inside and it costs you $100,000. We got some details about exactly how much the attack we talked about last week is going to cost the city. Post Media reports that it could cost an estimated $100,000. They cited an anonymous source for that number. The city of Edmonton itself put out a news release saying that it's making safe and steady progress on the restoration of City Hall. And as we know, meetings were canceled this week, but they are resuming again, at least virtually, next week, the week of February 5th. And, you know, the city's reiterating that core services are uninterrupted, most frontline staff are still at work, and they've brought in trauma-informed counselors to support staff who were affected by the attack. Of course, as we talked about previously, they're going to do a security review. And I thought it was really interesting that the city of Winnipeg is also now doing a security review of its own program in response to what happened here in Edmonton. So they kind of saw this incident in Edmonton and thought, you know what, this is a good excuse for us to go in and do a review of our services as well. There is still no timeline, though, for when City Hall is meant to reopen to the public or indeed to council meetings. The enterprising listener might be saying, oh, council meetings resuming. What does this mean for our pedestrianized streets item? And indeed, it is item 6.1 on the schedule for Tuesday, February 6th. So uh, I'm ready to eat my hat and lose the bet. Looks like it will be going forward, though we've still got five days for it to go off the rails. Plenty of time for it to be delayed once again. 
Two days before this meeting, we will finally get water back in Edmonton, knock on wood. This is, of course, EPCOR this week has banned non-essential water use in Edmonton and the surrounding areas due to a pump failure at one of their water plants. Yeah, the main water treatment plant indeed. And so like the whole region, which relies on treated water from the North Saskatchewan River, has uh, been affected by this. And so there's been these mandatory bans in place. The news release that originally went out encouraged people to try to cut down on their water usage. It tried to ask laundromats and car washes to stop water usage there because they're obviously heavy users. The city itself has made a whole bunch of changes. It's not washing buses as frequently and, you know, some of the other things that are quite water intensive for it. And, and EPCOR said that it has had an impact. I don't think the numbers are as big as I would have expected, but you know they said that average water usage went from something like 370 million liters to 330 or 340 million liters. So a decrease, but not like a massive decrease. Most of you out there still having long showers is what I take from this. I think back to the uh, emergency alert for a power usage back in the cold snap and how if you look at the electrical usage graphs, the alert goes out and you can see a steep decline in the chart. I was expecting that for water. You know, I, I I was filthy and stinky and, you know, making my house unpleasant for my partner and my cats. And what was it all for? Turns out we didn't actually reduce water by that much. No. And, and you know, as far as I can tell, water's still flowing pretty well across the city. There haven't been many reports of, you know, major concerns or issues. They did warn that water pressure could be lower in some cases and things like that. But for the most part, it seems to be you know, still functioning, even as they're working on the replacement. And that's why I think Councillor Tim Cartmel's post about this is particularly interesting. So he happens to chair the Utilities Committee right now, and he's asked for representatives from EPCOR to come to the meeting on March 4th to provide an overview about this equipment failure and, and how such a essential bit of infrastructure doesn't seem as resilient as you might think. And I think that's a good thing. Like, I'm, I'm glad that EPCOR will come and they'll have to come and talk to council about it because, of course, they'll do their own review. But will it be public? Who knows? They come to committee. Now we get some stuff on the record. We can learn something about it. The only thing that's strange about it is, as I'm saying, you know, water, there's a non-essential ban in place, but water's still working pretty well. So it's broken. There's a failure, but it's not like we don't have water. So it does make me question how unresilient, is that the word, that it actually is? In any case, it seems we'll have an opportunity to learn more in about a month. Of course, we're going to close this podcast on some not so great news, I think is the most charitable way to put this. Uh, we're a municipal politics podcast, so we don't wade into provincial politics very often. But I think with Daniel Smith's most recent announcements, there's going to be no option but for municipal politicians to wade in. And this, of course, is the announcement I'm talking about where she is putting in place the most severe restrictions on trans and gender-affirming care in the country uh, in a move that I don't know surprised most people, but I think the extent to which it was rolled out was shocking. Yeah, so the announcement here is sweeping policy changes related to gender identity, surgery, sports, education. Daniel Smith talked about gender-affirming surgery, hormonotherapy, puberty blockers, requiring parental permission for students 15 and under to use their chosen pronouns or names at school, banning transgender women from participating in women's sports leagues, and doing some sort of collaboration to try to find gender-neutral leagues or create some other kinds of leagues, 
requiring government approval to teach third-party material about gender and sexuality. There's a broad range of things that have been announced by the premier. It's not clear at this stage how exactly those changes would be enacted, if they're policy changes, or if there'll be legislative changes. And as you uh, can kind of gather from the way Troy introduced this, the response to it has been pretty negative, I would say, overall. Lots of organizations have called this uh, a really terrible policy. It could have a chilling effect on students and schools and inclusive spaces and obviously transgender people. So this is something that I think we're going to be hearing a lot about over the next little while. And as you say, Troy, we're not a provincial politics podcast, but this will affect other levels of government and other institutions that we do pay attention to more closely in Edmonton, such as the school boards. So I think the most immediate impact of this is going to be felt in the sort of speaking out phase. Immediately after this announcement was made, you saw organizations and politicians across the country say things like, trans people, you are loved, know that we're we're here for you. Uh, Various permutations of that statement as they work to what can we do to challenge this? And we saw Councillor Andrew Knack uh, echo some of these comments. I suspect, given the politics of Edmonton, this is going to become a mandatory statement to make. I, I think politically in Edmonton, there is not an appetite for this, not even legislation, maybe order and council. Again, we don't know exactly how this will be implemented. But people are going to be looking to their city councillors to speak out both against this and in support of the people who it would inevitably harm. And we have a couple pretty strongly UCP-aligned councillors on the Edmonton City Council. I'm thinking of Councillor Sarah Hamilton and Tim Cartmel, who sit on task forces, who are close with the Premier, who in some cases meet with the Premier before even the Mayor of Edmonton. And there is an upcoming election a couple years away. I don't want to think about an election quite yet. (laughs) But the province has indicated that they are getting serious about the idea of political parties and municipal politics. So I think it will be very interesting to see how we have our more conservative councillors interact with this policy and either stand up or don't stand up for their constituents. Because should there be provincial parties in the next municipal election, speaking out against the UCP government may well cost you your seat in a conservative-aligned ward. We haven't heard anything, to my knowledge as of recording, from either councillors Cartmel or Hamilton. but. I will be watching both of them most closely of the council over the next couple of weeks. And Councillor Andrew Knack, who you mentioned earlier, has of course been leading the charge against the idea of political parties at the municipal level. He's been quite vocal about that consistently. Uh, and so I expect we'll hear more from him about that. We haven't seen those posts, but Troy, we do have actually some late breaking news here as we're recording this on Thursday, February 1st. De- uh, Premier Daniel Smith has said they will introduce legislation this fall to support the planned policy changes affecting transgender and non-binary youth and adults. So that is how they plan to bring this into effect. Yeah, I'm sure this is something that we will be talking about across the province for, well, at least until the fall, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But we will do our best to cover how this impacts people local in the city of Edmonton, because, of course, this will affect everyone in the province in some way or another. And my hope is that it will not impact them in too stark or too permanent a way, which is, of course, the danger of policies like this. And on that very, very happy note, let's jump into some jokes, I guess, in the (laughs) rapid-fire segment. 
Edmonton Member of Parliament Blake Desjardins requested an emergency debate on the housing crisis after the City of Edmonton declared a housing emergency. The Speaker, however, did not grant his request for debate, leaving the crestfallen NDP Member of Parliament no option but to hang his head and return to his second home in Ottawa. Flair Airlines owes $67 million in unpaid taxes, leading the CRA to explore seizure of the carrier's property. The budget airline, however, pushed back, saying the CRA has no right to take their property. Flair customers legitimately lost all those items, fair and square. An Edmonton man has joined a group of motorists attempting to drive around the world in 17 months. The route, which, quote, never leaves the surface, will take drivers from New York City up through Edmonton and Yellowknife to the North Pole before traveling through Europe, Asia and Africa to the South Pole, then finally driving back up through South America to New York. Upon completion, the Edmontonian has indicated they intend to call the new loop Anthony Henday 2. Speaking municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton. And Mac, I see the ad here is once again for the Taproot Edmonton calendar. I guess we're going to join the recurring segment of what's coming up this week. (laughs) Maybe for now. We have mentioned the calendar in the last couple of episodes, and we have heard from listeners, actually, who have said, this is amazing. I'm going to... You know, add uh, my own events to the calendar, share this with friends. So thank you for all of you listening who have taken the time to do that. And also for several of you who have sent us some feedback, including you, Troy, on how we can improve uh, the calendar, which we launched in beta, of course, just before the holidays. We've got lots more events in the calendar. What's catching your eye, Troy? We, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Flying Canoe. That's, of course, this weekend. Uh, head on down to the Mill Creek Ravine and enjoy all those lights. Uh, this weekend, there's right by my home over in the Fringe Grounds at both the Varscona and the Fringe Theater Art Barns, two plays that look interesting. There's The Drawer Boy and Donna Orbits the Moon, both playing this weekend. Uh, I'm going to have some free time after I walk up from Flying Canoe, so maybe I might go see a show. Mac, was there anything on the calendar for you? Well, there's lots of things on the calendar. One of the great things about this is I'm learning about so many things that happen in our city, but I'm excited about Lunar New Year and Chinatown New Year. And there's the Together Chinatown Art Fair coming up on February 10th and 11th. So a little bit further out, but that'll be great. And since we have Stephanie here today, I have to mention Nash 86, Mm -hmm. which is in our calendar coming up February 16th to 18th. It's Canada's largest student journalism conference. And Stephanie, you're speaking. Yeah, I'm actually doing two sessions. I'm doing one with a couple of other like younger early career journalists just about being an early career journalist. And then I'm doing one on my own. They asked me to take on a second session because so many people are coming to the conference, which is awesome. And they're like, we need more sessions so that they're not crowded. And this, the, the second one I'm doing just by myself is about how to find a job. I'm going to be giving out tips and tricks. I'm going to be showing pieces of my cover letters, my spreadsheet that I use to track all of my job interviews. If you're a student journalist, check it out. And of course, you can learn about that and more at edmonton.taproot.events for the calendar, or just head to taprootedmonton.ca for the latest on everything that Taproot does. But that is all we does for this episode this week. It was a full house this week. Uh, Thanks for joining us, both Stephanie and the now departed Tim. Uh, It's always great to have Taproot reporters come join us on Taproot's marquee show. Uh, I'm staking the claim. Let's find out. Can uh, take my back seat. Uh, until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Stephanie. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. I tried so hard to time it with Mac so that I wouldn't mess it up. Good job.